Welcome everyone to the Dining on a Dime podcast, where we give you tips on how to save on your monthly food budget. Now we give you the absolute best foodie news, and our professionals will give you recipes and cooking tips. So let's get the show started. All right, welcome to Dining on a Dime. Today's show, we're going to start off with some fun facts from Pennsylvania, New Jersey. If you live in Pennsylvania, New Jersey, we have some very fun food facts. We have a couple of uh, other states, but we're going to focus on Pennsylvania, New Jersey. Uh, that'll be for the first 15 minutes. The second 15 minutes is author... Vivica Menendez. It's actually going to be the for a half an hour that right. we get to speak with her. And what's great about uh, the author is that... We're talking about getting healthy for the new year. So she has written several books. Uh, a lot of them focus on healthy eating. And then we're going to end the show with our food historian, Gene Bloom. He's going to be talking about the Feast of the Seven Fishes. So we're going to start off with fun facts about PA in New Jersey. We're going to go into an author with a books on healthy eating uh, to get you ready for the new year, get you in shape. And then we are going to end the show with the Feast of the Seven Fishes. Let's get started. Our friends in Pennsylvania, here's a couple of fun food facts for you. Mr. Peanut was actually created in Wilkes-Barre, PA. Dunmore, PA's What the Truck is the food truck in Dunmore, PA. And it won Kelly and Michael, live with Kelly and Michael's Best Food Truck Award. Cooper's Seafood House is in Scranton, PA, and they have hosted many famous people, including uh, President Obama and other famous athletes. Uh, Mission Brand Foods is actually a big, huge uh, food brand. They are manufactured in Mountaintop, PA. I didn't know that. I actually, I've seen Mission Foods. Yeah, they're very popular. Yeah, and yeah. I, you know, that's that's just something I thought, you know, no offense to PA, but I thought that it was, <laughs> you know, located in a place like Mexico or, no, you and know. As we are talking, our alcohol expert, Matt Maritea, has joined us. It's myself, uh, food photojournalist Amaris Pollock, and alcohol genius, genius. Matt Maritea. Uh, we're doing some fun facts about New Jersey and Pennsylvania food. And uh, let me keep going until you guys are settled. Stegmeyer beer, which dates back to 1857, is actually produced in the great town of Wilkes-Barre, PA. Do you know anything about uh, Stegmeyer beer, Matt? Stegmeyer uh, is a beer in Wilkes-Barre. It goes down smooth. <laughs> here's here's something in your wheelhouse. Yingling is the oldest brewery, and it started in 1829 in Pottsville, Pennsylvania. Yes, Yingling, America's oldest brewery. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I can practically recite the commercial. <laughs> I, I feel like, and it actually helped uh, survive through prohibition by uh, converting itself into a creamery, made ice cream. How about that? There you go, Matt. Matt just walking in and hitting the home runs. Um, ring pops, <clears throat> the famous ring pops, are actually made in Scranton, Pennsylvania. <laughs> That's cute. Isn't I love that? ring ring pops. You know, I've I've 
jokingly, because um, we were in the foodie world, right. um, we have foodie wives, foodie husbands, foodie fiancés. Um, ring pops are a fun way to like solidify that you know marriage of your foodie cohort. <laughs> uh, uh, oh, oh, this is another thing up Matt Mar- uh, Maritay's wheelhouse. Authentic, very authentic and real Northeast Pennsylvania restaurants are often mentioned in the TV show The Office. How about that? Who would have known? Yeah, I mean, it, when you're going to do a show like they did with The Office and you're going to base it in a place like Scranton, yeah. you have to be able to get it right. And those restaurants that they talked about were actually real restaurants. Uh, Bingham's Restaurant in Kingsley, Pennsylvania is known for pies and was visited by President Obama in 2013. Hazleton, Pennsylvania is known for a cold cut pizza, which I thought was a pretty cool idea. It's a pizza with cold cuts. It's called the Pits. <laughs> is the pizza hot? Yes, with cold cuts on top. That works. Yeah. Yeah. So I wonder if you could just like kind of curl it in your hand and eat it like a hoagie. I don't know. It's, it's interesting. Uh, Pittstown, PA uh, was dubbed the tomato capital of the world in the 1930s. Harry Chapin, if we have any Harry Chapin uh, uh, fans... Uh, his song, 30,000 Pounds of Bananas, is based on a tragic accident that happened in Scranton, PA, involving a truck full of bananas. <laughs> and they're looking at me like, okay. Uh, Matt, take one of the sheets for New Jersey and start giving us some New Jersey uh, fun facts. Well, as a proud New Jersey resident, yes, uh, I'm always happy to refer to probably what our state's most known for. And that it's diners. Nice. Obviously, New Jersey, the worldwide leader in diners, more than any other state. And, I mean, they don't really have it outside of America, do they? I mean, there's Yeah, no, that's true. Yeah, I don't think there's a Brazilian diner. No, that's true. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if I've ever seen diners when I've traveled abroad. Yeah, I don't, I don't They're know. They're cafe, cafes, yes, but not, you know, restaurants and little things like that, but not diners. Maybe, I I guess, in Canada, but it's not nearly as prevalent. Right. Yeah. Uh, Goya Foods, if we're going to get, speaking of international. Can you get more popular than Goya, right? And they have a huge, they have a large facility, too. Yes. Yes. That facility happens to be located in Jersey City. How about that? Yeah. Uh, Going down our uh, trip through the supermarket aisles here, Manischewitz. Uh, which very popular with the kosher food items. Very popular. Yep, everybody knows that section. Headquartered in Newark, New Jersey. How about that? Yeah. Wow. And uh, a lot of people do say, you know, New Jersey, technically the Garden State, correct? That is correct. Yeah. Uh, if we're going to talk New Jersey fruits, the Highbush Blueberry, the official state fruit as of 2004. Wow. Now, let me let me be honest. I don't even know what that is. <laughs> But that's great. (laughs) Uh, Let me keep going with uh, Pennsylvania so we can make sure we finish them. Milk is the official state beverage of Pennsylvania, and it was enacted in 1982. So that was interesting. Pennsylvania is the leading manufacturer of both hard and soft pretzels. I didn't know that. I thought hard pretzels might have been somewhere else, but both hard and soft pretzels. Uh... Banana splits. Oh, you'll like this, Matt. Mm -hmm. Banana splits were invented 
in Latrobe, Pennsylvania, by a druggist in 1904. Couple more Latrobe fun facts. Okay. Home of one of the world's greatest golfers of all time and most popular, Arnold Palmer, drink inventor. Yes. And the home of Rolling Rock beer. Nice. Which was so unique to Latrobe that when Budweiser came in and changed the recipe, they made them change it back. How about that? Yeah. that wow. That's that's so, that blew my mind. I didn't know that. Uh I'm gonna give a couple more and then Amherst Pollock will uh, go on with the New Jersey list. Uh, Hershey Kisses, obviously, were invented in Hershey, Pennsylvania in 1907. But did you all know that that was in 1907? Probably not. (laughs) (laughs) There are two major potato chip brands in Pennsylvania. It is Utz is based in Pennsylvania and Hers. Hers was the first potato chip to bring out a flavored potato chip such as barbecue. And that was done as early as 1950. I thought that was a lot older. Do you have a preference, hers or Utz? I actually uh, like hers. I'm a hers guy, and if they want to sponsor the show, they're more than welcome. <laughs> I'll second that. Make I'm, hers ours. Yes. yes. Yeah, I was going to third that. I lo- I prefer hers as well. There's yes. nothing wrong with Utz, though. I just... I don't know. It's. I just, feel like hers some... has just sort of always been there. Yeah, it's I like think if it's... I got handed chips, it happened to be hers. And we all know that the Tasty Cake was created by the Tasty Baking Company, but did you know that Tasty Cakes were invented in 1914? That is older than I would have thought. I thought mm-hmm. that was, you know, a more recent thing. Food photo journalist, Amherst Pollock, uh, go on with New Jersey. Well, um, I was actually at an event one time, and sitting across from me was a woman who did the marketing for Campbell's Soup Company. about that? Yeah, quite interesting. I had no idea who was across from me, but what I didn't know is that Campbell's Soup has been in Camden, New Jersey since 1869. So I, you know, have ties to Campbell's Soup, in it, essentially. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and Can I say one thing about uh, Campbell's Soup? Sure. Uh, I don't know if you guys know this, but they all, uh, have their own marketing company called RDT, and you can do focus groups and try out Campbell's Soup products before they come on the market, and they actually pay pretty well. And if you go to the Campbell's Soup headquarters, it is overly impressive. It blows me away every time I go there to do a taste test. <clears throat> and we're going... Back and forth, the guy who owns the brewery I work at used to work marketing for Campbell's Soup. How about that? Oh, I didn't know that. That's a big job. So we're connecting all the dots here. (laughs) You know, I actually recently just sidetracked. um, I picked up a strawberry shandy from you guys. Oh, nice. Over at Zets, yeah. At Zets Beer. Remember, Mm -hmm. store it upside down and then flip it back and forth right before opening, especially with the strawberry one. Good to know. (laughs) Okay, let's continue with New Jersey facts. We have about four minutes in the segment. Well, speaking of breweries, um, the first brewery in uh, America was in Hoboken. In 1647, they opened up. Now, Matt, what do you think about that? Did you know breweries were that old? I did not know that. I think that is incredible. I well, mean, yeah. how would you not think that it would be that old? Because I, I would have thought it was sooner. But then again, well, we talked about the Egyptians, right? From, they, from an American industry, uh, that's incredibly soon, right? Uh, yeah. And that was uh, Castle Point. It opened up way, way back then. Uh, Hoboken was always sort of that industrialist area right outside New York. It was most likely Dutch. 
Oh, that's yeah, interesting. Yeah, it was Dutch in that area. And what I think is interesting is that uh, we talked about this on the show, but beer has been since the beginning of time. Like the ancient Egyptians yeah. would pay people in beer. Yeah. You know, so well, and especially back then, beer was considered safer than water, so it was a an absolute necessity. That's interesting. Yeah. Let's continue with our New Jersey list. Uh, we have a couple minutes left in the state. Uh, in the state. In this segment. Yeah. <laughs> M and M's. How about that? Right. Where yeah. would you, you would imagine that? That's. I mean, who knows where? Right. But it's actually Hackettstown, New Jersey, the official. Headquarters of M&M's. I didn't know that. Yeah. Even though I wrote the show, I didn't know. <laughs> Go ahead, Matt. Let's see. Uh, if we want to refer to probably one of New Jersey's third or fourth most famous foods, that's pork roll. Yes. And the reason it's called Taylor Ham is because John Taylor invented pork roll in 1856. Civil War era pork roll. How about that? Yeah. So you had uh, pork roll was invented in 1856. That's fascinating. Yeah, I think I, uh, I think I trust pork roll a little now, a little more now. Uh, the first pizzeria in America, right? Trenton in 1912. That's when it opened. And isn't is, I don't I didn't look this up, but I think they're still open, and I think they have a plaque on the wall for that. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah. Good. And it's I mean pizza. It's incredible that it's gone in the course of a hundred years from. Uh, some novelty to yeah. as ubiquitous as it is now. That is very true. Yeah. Uh, when you uh, another sort of foodie famous crossover, Cake Boss. Right. A lot of people don't actually realize Cake Boss is located in Hoboken, New Jersey. How about that? And he just had that horrible accident. Could yeah. you imagine uh, with the, the bowling alley? Wow. Yeah, but Cake I. Boss. I've talked to a number of people. They always say, oh, yeah, I've always wanted to go to New York and see that. I'm like, it's not New York. <laughs> that's Hoboken. That's true. And that's a great show, by the way. Sorry, I had to uh, step out for a minute. But I just wanted to introduce Vivica Menendez. Oh, that's who is fantastic. Our, yes, oh, yeah. who is our next uh, guest on our show. So, Vivica, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you. How are you guys doing today? Outstanding. We're very happy to have you on the show. So I'm excited. Yes. Thank you. I'm excited to bring you on because everyone's going to be looking to uh, do or have a new New Year's resolution. And what better to do than to try to lose weight and eat healthier? So I wanted to bring you on because you wrote two, not just one, but two. And you've also co-wrote other um, cookbooks as well. And... Um, you have your own blog. So why don't you talk about the keto cooking for healing and weight loss and the essential carnivore diet? Yeah, thank you. Um, so keto cooking is a second edition. It's coming out with a, a new, more informative title this year. But the book already came out, a, was it a year ago or two years ago? And it did really well. And I think that the new title really focuses more on what the book is for. So for me, weight loss is a product of a healthy body and is not something you want to force on the body. So weight loss really by itself doesn't make as much sense as like, get healthy, you will lose weight no matter what. It's going to happen. And especially with that book, the, you know, the keto eating for healing and weight loss, 
it's like my manifesto. It's like everything that I believe in and really for me, like the ultimate way for healthy eating that is not just like ketogenic. It, it can be like kind of fluctuating between keto and low carb, but it has a lot of like unprocessed healthy ingredients, nutrient dense ingredients. And the recipes in that book, they're maybe some are a little fancier, but Still very doable, very simple. And, you know, for me, I'm Italian. I was born and raised in Italy. So eating and enjoying my food is really important. And just because you have to be healthy, I mean, you want to be healthy. It doesn't mean that you're going to be deprived or eat, you know, bland food or boring food. Not at all. So I really try to put all my love of food into that book. And what I tell people usually is just like, just read the book, do the recipes, and, you know, don't think too hard about it. Just experience what it means to eat a healthy and nutrition diet and see what happens without having to put so much focus on, like, oh, I need to count my macros, I need to count my calories, you know, there's going to be a meal plan, and I have to stick to this meal plan exactly. That is all great, but sometimes, is too much for people. And so I like the simple approach of like, here is a you know wide array of examples of good food that you can eat. Just start doing that and see what happens. <laughs> exactly. And I noticed that, um, I mean, in with all the recipes that are in both of the books, that it's very meat heavy. Um, one of the books is very like an iron rich heavy diet. Now, is that normal for the keto diet or is that something that you just lean towards? So, the two books kind of have two different aspects. One is like more considered ketogenic and it's a, like a dairy-free ketogenic book. The other one is strictly carnivore, although it does include some carbs, not really veggies. There are a few things like honey and some fruit, uh, some berries, some spices. So it's not just meat and water like the strict carnivore would be, although there are some recipes like that as well. Um, for me personally, I think that the carnivore diet is a healing diet, is a very strict elimination diet. And then it would start as a very strict elimination diet and then kind of open up. So what is an elimination diet is something that you do usually when you are sick and you're trying to heal your body through the food. So the fact of the iron, yes, meat does contain a lot of iron. A lot of women are anemic. A lot of people that have thyroid issues, which is a big epidemic in this country, have an underlying anemia problem. So having a diet that is rich in iron is actually going to benefit a lot of these people who, instead of having to take iron supplements, will get their nutrition through the food. Um, I think that this, you know, carnivore is a great place to start when you have certain issues like a damaged gut and your microbiome is imbalanced. So, you know, you have a lot of intestinal issues like IBS or in autoimmunity of your intestines and any kind of autoimmunity. Because it's such a strict elimination diet, it really benefits any autoimmune condition. So it's a good place to start. Do I think that we should stay carnivore forever? Probably not. 
of course, you know, there are always exceptions, people, there are many people with many different individual bodies. But I think that for the large majority of people, that would be a great place to start and then transition to a more open diet, which would be the second book there, which was my first book. I mean, (laughs) the previous book, you know, I actually have four cookbooks. I have another one with another publisher. So like, I get confused sometimes which one was first and which one came out <laughs> and and for our listeners out there the the and the other book that i think you're speaking of is the everything big book of fat bombs is that correct or is it um yep that's oh, the one okay that's the one that i didn't do with page Street publishing okay and um it's actually a really fun little book uh fat bombs it was, I feel like it was a little bit of a fad, you know, in the mainstream, like especially with bloggers and, you know, people like looking for the latest little trick um, came and went. But there is value in fat bombs. And the way that I approached that book specifically, I wanted to make it as like mini fat increasing meals. Because a lot of people that transition from like the standard low fat diet, they you know, in America, we've been doing for 50 years, they don't know how to eat fat. And like, you know, a lot of my patients, my clients, they're like, how do I eat fat? What do I eat? Why do I stray from the cube? I know, I know. I think that little book, go ahead. I was going to say, I know a lot of people shy away from, you know, when you say to eat fat, but they, you know, they're thinking Mm -hmm. like the negative aspect of it, whereas you can get fats from nuts, from avocados, from, you know, certain fishes, you know, that are heavier in their their fat intake. So it's not that you're eating unhealthy, it's that you're eating a healthy way of consuming the fats. So I just wanted to put that out there, too. Uh, Vivica, I have a... Yeah. Sorry, I have a couple questions for you. Uh, I'm Matt. I uh, I've been doing low carbish for a while, and I was a college hockey player. I'm still very active. I, I work out a lot, and I have younger uh, kids that I coach now. And I'm mm-hmm. sort of wondering about sort of the sustainability uh, of a keto diet, you know, with athletes because I've I've tried to make the transition from low carb fully to keto, but I always feel like I sort of hit some kind of uh, energy wall or that I'm going to suffer performance-wise. Is there something you can speak to about that, about how to find a good way to do that, uh, if that is sustainable for uh, someone who may be geared a little more athletically uh, rather than just losing weight? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So I think there is a lot of validity to what you're saying and experiencing. I think that depending on the kind of sport, the kind of athlete, athlete that you are, there could be a benefit in being keto for long term or it would not be the most appropriate diet. So there are different ways of doing a ketogenic diet. And one of the ways that is being used by athletes is a cyclical ketogenic diet. So where you actually use ketosis to leverage the benefits of ketosis for appetite reduction, for anti-inflammatory benefits, for um, lean muscle mass. All of those things are great, but you also use carbohydrates in a way to fuel the muscle for the workout. And this applies to high-intensity workouts. 
So hockey probably would fall under this category where you will want to do carb loading before a performance or before a game so that your muscles are loaded with glycogen, which is what is required for fast and, you know, explosive action. Um, when we talk instead for a different kind of performance, like marathon runners or people that have to do kind of like a low-grade, long, you know, low-intensity, long-duration exercise, then what we want to really build is stamina. And this is where fat comes in as an excellent fuel because it's not a spike of energy like a carbohydrate, but it's like a kind of like moderate burn for a long period of time. So ketosis enables a marathon runner to have long-term steady energy without that constant having to refuel with sugar or carbs and, you know, getting your blood sugar to be like a roller coaster up and down, up and down, which is really not good for the body. So there are different applications. And I think that knowing your keto diet and knowing you know, like the specifics of what goals you want to achieve is really going to help you cater to your needs, you know? So there are very different ways to apply it. And uh, I just have a quick question. This is Kevin Wilson. Uh, I am the older person here, and uh, I remember the Atkins diet. Uh, it was a carnivore, mm-hmm. you know, it was an all-meat diet. Discuss the difference between... Mm-hmm. Your book and the Atkins diet, is there any difference? Rob Lowe still lives Atkins. <laughs> you see him on the commercials. And he looks great. Uh, it's, it, but I'm just curious. Uh, and, and just so you know, um, there is, uh, her, she co-wrote one of these books with um, Aaron Bel- Blevins, I want to say is her name. And uh, Henry Cavill yeah. is one of her clients. And that, for anybody who doesn't know the name. He's is gorgeous. Su- yeah, he's gorgeous. He's Superman. Oh, okay. <laughs> Well, I'm just curious. Just curious about the Atkins uh, link. <laughs> so Atkins, you know, had different phases, and I'm not a specialist of the Atkins diet, right. but I know right. that the the induction phase was more ketogenic, and then it transitioned into more of a high protein diet. But it was not a high fat, high protein diet, so it was more like low calorie, low fat. Gotcha. So the, in the first phase, they got you into ketosis, but then for maintenance, they reintroduced some carbs, but the fat was kept at a pretty low level. So there is a danger in doing that. And I feel like that's why a lot of people were not really able to um, stick on Atkins. They did great at the beginning. They lost weight. They were in ketosis. They felt great. That's actually... Once that- your body is no, no, I'm just saying that's actually a great point because a lot of people would do it for a short period of time and then and then get off it. You're right. Mm-hmm. And this is because once your body has reached the ideal weight, you need to fuel the body with fat. And like once you have consumed pretty much all the fat on the body that you wanted extra, that you wanted gone, you burn that for energy. But then at a certain point, in order for us to have healthy functions, You know, this is not just about performance. It's not just about look. This is about the different systems of our body and how they operate. You know, so we have digestive system, hormonal system, you know, nervous system, et cetera, et cetera. We want to make sure that all the systems are fat, nourished, and in balance. And in order to do that, we do require more fat in our diets that this modern 
mentality has led us to believe. So it all comes from Ansel Keys and, you know, the 50s and 60s and, you know, it's a long story. Right. But if you look at how our ancestors ate, they ate a lot more fat. And this is the way for, for us to have that nice, long-term sustained energy, stable blood sugar, all the nutrients, all the vitamins, you know, they come through these good fats and proteins mostly. Carbohydrates are kind of expandable, but I would say carbohydrates are necessarily used in a good way, in a targeted way, and not abused. They're easy to abuse. <laughs> now, Vivica, um, I read because you also have are the founder of the Nourished Caveman. Um, I I found on there that you spoke about your love story between the keto diet and you healing your body um, to. Explain to our listeners the the additional benefits of the keto diet and the cookbooks that you are providing for us so that we can learn how to, you know, benefit from, from eating the correct nutrients. Why don't you tell a little bit about your particular love story with the keto diet? Yeah, I would love that. It has made a huge difference for me. It was... Um, I got acquainted with keto when I was, I think, around 45. And all of a sudden, I don't know, I was studying nutrition and I was thinking eating local, organic, everything, you know, we had a homestead. I thought I was doing the best thing ever and I was eating paleo, paleo-ish. But I kept gaining weight and I was like, I started having inflammation in my joints. I was like, you know, not feeling good, tired, shortness of breath, all these symptoms that normally consider like, oh, it's normal, you're getting older. But I, you know, I didn't connect the dots, even though I was studying nutrition, until I found out that I was pre-diabetic. I started measuring my blood sugar, and I saw that it was way higher than it should have been. And so it's just like the light bulb where finally went on in my head. And that really made me commit to the ketogenic lifestyle and I switched the way I ate. I just cut out the carbs and for the first year I was really, really compliant and like I just excuse me. I just was really one hundred percent because like those that was something big for me. And you know, also I found out maybe six months later that I had Hashimoto thyroiditis. My thyroid probably had been low for a long time without being diagnosed and things that happen to a lot of people. And those were like rude awakenings. But I also had a lot of faith in nutrition and in what I was doing, you know, not just to help other people, of course, to help myself as well. So I just gave it my 100% and like was compliant with my diet, I, you know, took supplements, I need, I did what I needed to do. And within a year, I was like, literally transformed, I lost all the weight. I looked great, I felt younger than I've ever felt like, probably in my life, I felt more energetic. You know, I started working out, have the energy to work out. Um, my adrenals were probably chronically stressed. And like, so through diet and supplementation and nutrition, I was able to like, recover them so that oh and I also healed my fibroids something I had fibroids that were the size of oranges and most people would have had them taken out 
and I decided to not do it. And I pretty much successfully shrunk them and managed them. So there was a lot of really good things that happened through the diet and nutrition. I think Matt has a question for you. And then uh, I'm, I'm going to also ask you to share one of your favorite rest recipes that you m may have created for your cookbook after he asks whatever it is he is brewing. Go ahead, Matt. Yes. Uh, 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 going off of uh, sort of the name, the nourished caveman, uh, I wanted to ask, uh, what do you uh, think of sort of like these uh, this new rise of, I guess, ancestral diets where people are doing like they're, they're 23 and me or, or getting their DNA tested. And then people are kind of basing their future diets off of what those results come back. So I wanted to ask about that. And I also wanted to get your take on non-eating, which I know is a little bit of a taboo subject here, but mm -hmm. uh, the uh, intermittent fasting <laughs> and how it pairs I, with ketogenic. I believe Jimmy Kimmel did that and was successful. God. I oh. did that for a very short period of time yeah. and, and getting used to not eating and then just like loading. I don't know. I don't think it's the best idea. Well, I, I, it's not necessarily about loading. I mean, I'm, I usually do about 14 hours between sundown to sun up, sun up yeah, typically, sort of the circadian rhythm one. But I've done as high as 16 hours before on a regular basis. That was tough. <laughs> so what... what okay, is, so yeah. let's start with the ancestral diet. Um, I think there is a lot of value in ancestral diets. I also think that we shouldn't take it to the extremes because we are modern individuals and you know there are many aspects i think that need to be considered i think that yes we should keep an eye on our ancestry on our dna because there is probably a variant in how an individual can for example tolerate carbohydrates versus not at all or like tolerate high amounts of protein some people need more protein than others and can process, you know, more protein or higher levels of fat. So I would say an informed decision is a good decision. Also, there are other um, factors that I would definitely consider, which are where do you live now? Maybe you have, you know, Northern European ancestry, but now you live in Florida with a tropical climate. So are you going to eat high fat and meat all day because every day of the year? when it's like 100 degrees outside and tropical fruit everywhere, I don't think that's appropriate. So I think that an eye on the ancestry plus eating local, seasonal, and appropriate to like the weather and the climate and whatever is available locally that is, you know, relevant to that area, I think it's very important so that our body really adapts. Humans are incredible at adapting. So I think that yes, our genes matter, but there also there is epigenetics where our genes can modulate and switch on and off depending on diet and lifestyle. So I don't think that the genes are written in stone and it's something that we have to take as the Bible for our health. Now, uh, um, you like mentioned say, that you're Italian. Does that make you maybe a little bit more adaptive to something like, say, pasta? I say, hopefully, also being Italian. <laughs> you would think, right? But actually, it's the <laughs> opposite. And I think it has to do 
more than with my Northern European genetics, it has to do with like the maladaptation of like an overuse of gluten and carbohydrates in uh, Italy for maybe the last mm-hmm. few hundred years. Because if you go to Italy now, everybody's celiac. It's crazy. Like so many people are becoming celiac, not just intolerant, full-blown celiac. And I mean, for me, that has to do with the quality of the grains that we're eating, but also with the quantity. So, of course, there's all the pesticides, all the GMO, all the crap that you put on the grains. But it's also the fact that Italians eat pasta basically three times a day. (laughs) (laughs) And I want to say that I I read um, in the little synopsis that you also recommend, you know, buying organic meats and, and whatnot, too, because it does contain less of the toxins that are out there so that we, you know, consume less of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's one of the very important parts of like about the health part. And guess what? You guys maybe have never made the connection between toxins and weight loss. But I would say that nine out of 10 of my clients that come to me for weight loss, they can't lose weight because of toxicity. So when your body is loaded with toxins, they get stored in your fat. It's kind of like the safe deposit you know, where your body does not, you're not going to drop dead because your your toxicity is stored away safely, but it is stored in your fat cells. And so when your body is not able to lose weight, that means you need to detox. And you need to detox in a way that is safe for your body to be able to do. And sometimes that's why I say get healthy, get clean, detox, and then the weight will just melt away pretty much with no problem, with almost effortlessly, pretty much. (laughs) (laughs) Now, um, do you have any recipes that you would like to recommend out of either of your books? Um, (laughs) Of course, I have some um, recipes that I really love. And it's funny because my taste being Italian is a little different than American sometimes. But I was thinking, you know, like talking about being mindful of like cost and like, you know, having recipes that are really nutrient dense and not expensive. I think that my first one that I could recommend would be the crispy eggs and anchovies. And for me, it's like a morning classic. I know that not everybody out there has the same love for anchovies as an Italian, but they, you know, if, I think people would be surprised if they give them a chance. And like everybody loves a really well-made fried egg, um, which there are little tricks to how to make the perfect fried egg to make it all crispy and bubbly and, you know, amazing and, and like perfectly cooked yolk. So that already in itself is like, it's delicious. But then the little bit of salty you know, taste on top that blends in with the egg of the anchovy. Just, I think it's a match made in heaven. And both are very nutrient-dense foods. So it's a perfect way to start your day. (laughs) Is through that. You had Matt shaking his head over here with like, yeah, like he was was digging that. (laughs) I I love anchovies. Um, I... Yay! (laughs) (laughs) I know, and I know the thing is, is I think isn't um, 
because you know some of your recipes include d- directions on how to make uh, dressings or whatever. But I isn't um, a Caesar dressing made with anchovies or something to that matter? It should be. Yep. Uh, yeah, that's yeah. what I thought. And there is a recipe for a keto Caesar salad in my other book, the Keto for Healing and Weight Loss, and it's like a keto Caesar recipe. That's great. And yeah, it's like the secret ingredient in the dressing is the anchovy. <laughs> <laughs> He's nodding his head over here again. Um, I, I'm I'm one who loves you know flavors and being you know the boldness of things like that. And I I will say that um, your keto cooking for healing and weight loss has a lot of recipes that are Mediterranean and almost Indonesian um, based. So I. I saw that you have a Thai green curry that I was salivating over. I was just like, ooh, I need that. Um, But is there any particular, like, spicy recipe that you would recommend that, you know, is your go-to? You know, I love that curry so much as well. It's a little bit labor-intensive because I kind of made it a point to like wanting to present a recipe that's made from scratch. But if you take the time and put it together, I think that the mind-blowing part or taste bud-blowing part is really that it is made from scratch. It's so fresh. And you also have control over all of your ingredients. So there is no hidden agenda in your ingredients that, you know, maybe you didn't read every single ingredient on the label of like a pre-made curry sauce. Like this, you know exactly what's going in there. And then, you know, just like the combination of flavors. And when you make it yourself, you can always like modulate it to your palate. Some people like it a little more spicy. Some people like it a little more lemony, you know, a little more tangy. So you can really custom it to yourself, to your taste. And yeah, that's actually one of the recipes that got a lot of good review, a lot of good feedback. I can only imagine. I I myself love to be hit with like, you know, the hotness of of spices and boldness, as I said. Um, You know, if it makes me cry and I go numb and then I start tasting again, that's me that that I kind of love. Um, but for, <laughs> for those of, of you, our listeners that are out there that like something a little bit more mild, um, what would be a recipe that you would recommend starting out with? Um, I really love one of the, another like super popular recipe from the book I got excellent reviews on is the salmon Benedict. And that's another breakfast recipe. I'm a big fan of breakfast myself, you know, but you can make it pretty much like any time of the day. But like the smoked salmon and Benedict and with the um, low-carb hollandaise sauce, I think that one is like, it's easy enough, you know. That's when it puts together like in in a jiffy. So I think that people would really appreciate that. And you're making me hungry. <laughs> uh, it, what is the what is the best way to get these books? We haven't even talked about where to get them. I would love to buy one. Uh, where can I buy your books? Where can I find you? Uh, so the books are pretty much on all of the booksellers online and bookstores. 
So you can find them on Amazon, super easy. But then they're going to be at Barnes and Nobles and, you know, any place that sells books pretty much carries them. So Barnes and Nobles online and um, they're listed on the website. So there is actually the links. There are links from my blog, I think, not yet to the carnivore book. Um, the Essential Carnivore Diet Cookbook has its own page, which is the Essential Carnivore Diet Book Cookbook dot com. Okay. And then um, the other books you can find through my website, which is the Caveman dot com. Okay. And how else would we be able to reach you on social media? So, of course, I am on all the social media. So, I am on Facebook. I have a page for the Nourish Cavemen. Um, also on Instagram, on Pinterest. I have a really big Pinterest um, many boards with lots of recipes, oh. uh, including all of my own recipes that I put on the blog. So you can find um, a good collection on Pinterest. And um, let's see what else. Uh, I think that's it these days. And YouTube. Oh, yeah, of course. So I have a YouTube channel where I speak, I speak extensively about the ketogenic diet, the carnivore diet. And then as a nutritionist, my specialty is female hormones and thyroid hormones. So I have a lot of videos about hormones and how to like help your hormones through the diet, through nutrition and, um, and weight loss as well, of course. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Vivica, so much for joining us on Dining on a Dime. Um, be sure to look her up and try and pick up one of her books or both of them. Uh, the Ultimate Paleo Cookbook. Uh, you can pick up the Keto Cooking for Healing and Weight Loss, the Essential Carnivore Diet Cookbook, and follow her, her on her website, which is the, <clears throat> the Nourished Caveman. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, guys. This was fun. <laughs> Have a great you. day. It was great talking to you. Okay, and we're going to go to break, and we'll be back with the Feast of the Seven Fishes. Check out our new podcast, Learn About World Cuisine, where we travel to a different country from around the world each week and give you fascinating facts about both the country and the cuisine. Our world traveler gives you his real-life experience in the country, and our wine expert gives you the best wine pairings with your cuisine. Our podcast is available on all platforms, or you can simply Google Learn About World Cuisine to listen to the show. All right. We are very excited to have Gene again with us again. His uh, Reading Turn Terminal History lesson was a huge success. Gene is going to talk about the Feast of the Seven Fishes. Hello, Gene. Well, hello, everyone. Hello, Kevin. Hello, Amaris. How are you? Good. How Buno are you? Feste, everyone. Yes. I am wonderful. Thank you. So, Buno Feste, Buno Natale for Christmas Eve, we should say, right? So, yes, today we're going to talk about the Feast of the Seven Fishes. Um, I like to start this with a little disclosure that I am not Italian by heritage. I am actually Polish, Lithuanian, Ukrainian, Russian, French. So I had to spend many hours of eating and many hours of research to, you know, get to where I am on on the feast of the seven fishes, or as it's often called, the Eve 
or La Vigilia, which is the vigil. Um, and the vigil is a fascinating story. There really is more American Italian than from native Italy. Um, it has its roots in, in southern Italy as it celebrates the vigil. Uh, the vigil, the Vigilia di Natale, which is the midnight birth of Jesus. But it really comes about as an American celebration of their Italian roots. Um, it came about uh, in the late 1880s, uh, started in New York City uh, for the most part, and because we had such a population of Italian Americans here. Um, it is actually not a feast in a traditional uh, sense. A feast is a reflection and celebration of faith. It is really more of a grand meal, and that it is. Um, it has strong ties into the Catholic tradition of fasting and abstaining from meat. And Christmas Eve was originally a fast day in Italy. Um, and later on in life, they started to come up with special meals that had a lot to do with, you know, the particular regions. Um, one of the important things to know about the Feast of the Seven Fishes, and it can be as many as 12. My feast dinner actually features uh, 12 courses or 12 dishes, um, but it could be as few as one that's prepared seven different ways. And the seven really has strong roots in the Catholic upbringing. Uh, it's said to um, be seven because of the seven sacraments or the seven days of creation or the seven deadly sins, any which way you would uh, care to take that. And in the Bible itself, seven appears um, over 700 times. So in addition, uh, the fish is really a connection to Italy because of the sea and because the really the roots of this are based on the immigrant Italians who were, for the most part, impoverished that came to this country. Um, so it, it features and it talks a lot about the you know the foods of the impoverished. Um, anybody who knows anything about Italian history, um, you know, prior to the 1860s, Italy was a very biodiversified area. It had 20 different regions that all kind of celebrate the uh, Conadella, uh, which is, you know, the holiday a little bit differently and, and Christmas Eve a little bit differently. You know, in Piedmont, they, they had uh, Aglonote, which is a, it's a stuffed pasta. It's almost like a tortellini. It's a fabulous little stuffed pasta. In Roma, they had, um, you know, the minestrone de, de pesce, which is the fish soup. In Sardinia, they had a gnocchi that was done with tuna and fresh tomatoes. So everybody did a little bit different on the celebration on Christmas Eve. And in Italian history, around 1861, uh, Italy unified and brought all the regions together. And what happened in that process was um, a lot of the resources were sent north. And the South became a pretty impoverished part of Italy. And as a result, um, we saw the migration or the, the, you know, the outpouring of immigrants 
from Italy to the United States in the sums of, you know, two to four million coming over to this to this country. So, you know, when they got here around the 1880s, they started this celebration as a way of, you know, remembering their roots, remembering the overcoming of the poverty and bringing back their culture to the United States. And it's a really great meal. Um, originally, the meal started with usually like a whiting in lemon, and then there was clams and mussels and spaghetti, then uh, bacala and many, many more. The most important part of this is uh, the bacala, the salted cod, um, because it's a very simple dish that was uh, often served by the impoverished or the peasants. And, um, you know, that that is their way of remembering it. Now, uh, Gene, quarters, uh, yeah. I'm going to interrupt just a little bit here. Now, uh, through my experience with my family and, and being uh, Italian by heritage, it seems today the bacala is actually the most maligned member of a traditional Feast of the Seven Fishes. Uh, can you talk maybe a little bit as to why that is? And maybe can you tell us uh, some of the usual suspects around a typical feast? Sure. So the bacala is the hardest to prepare. It, it is a dry salted cod. And if you're familiar with any dried fish, but dried salted cod in particular, it takes many days of soaking it in water and pulling out, you know, rinsing, dumping that water, putting it in fresh water. It really requires a lot of loving care. Um, today, it's when you do find it today, Oftentimes, a lot of places will actually have done that for you and charge you a pretty penny to do that. But, you know, that, that dried fish requires days of preparation. I mean, it's, it's, it's a three- to four-day preparation of soaking and dumping and soaking and dumping and soaking and dumping to get it right. And if you don't, it is just ungodly salty. Now, so that, you know. I was Go I was going to interrupt and say now I know that you're not Italian but are you going to for Christmas have any Italian dishes on your table for your evening meal? So I don't do uh, the I don't do the feast Christmas Eve. We do uh, a very similar meal that celebrates the twelve disciples and that celebrates Christmas. It's a Lithuanian meal called kachios which is also a meatless dinner and has a number of different um, ceremonial dishes. But tonight, my family joins us and we do the feast dinner this evening. So we do an Italian feast of the seven dishes tonight. Yes, I will have I will have 12 Italian dishes on my table tonight. Wow. That's quite yeah. a bit. <laughs> and let's talk about the other fishes, Gene. Um, yeah, that's what Matt was curious sure. about. What are the other ones? So... You know, very eel is a very important dish. Yeah. Um, eel is very traditional; it goes back a long way. But you know, codfish balls uh, done in tomato sauce, calamari is a very important dish for the feast of the seven fishes, and it's prepared a lot of different ways. You can fry it. Um, it could also be stuffed, which is a very common thing in a lot of places out in Pittsburgh area and, and western Pennsylvania. Uh, a stuffed calamari is a very important dish. Fried smelts, again, another traditional dish going back. Schmelts are my Obviously, dad's favorite. A, uh, 
we have them as part of the Kachios, the Lithuanian dinner also. So I agree. I'm probably the only person who really will eat a lot of them tonight, but um, I do love them. <laughs> You're going to find, um, you know, linguine with various types of seafood, a good octopus salad. Uh, oysters are common today, often done as shooters. Um, you know, and then you can do simple things like putanesca because it has anchovies in it. You know, it's congealy, obviously. Um, lobster, if, you know, you wish to go that way to make a wonderful impression and brings on that prosperity. Uh, whiting is another one, you know, that you can do with that. Um, you know, my Italian dinner tonight, so we we start with that. So we count the appetizers as part. We do 12. I do one for each disciple tonight. So I'm doing shrimp cocktail, I'm doing calamari, and I'm doing a crab meat bruschetta. What time is dinner? Uh, we do a- <laughs> Which one's Judas? <laughs> <laughs> um, we follow that up with a uh, pasta course, which is a leading with scallops. What's really important to remember, because you have so much food, is that the sauces in the beginning need to be light. So I do mine in a very simple olive oil, white wine, garlic sauce, you know, nothing heavy. Um, I'm doing a seafood bisque right after that as a soup. And then I'm going to do a classic Caesar, um, you know, with a lot of anchovies on top. Some of my family picks them off. Some enjoys them, (laughs) Um, you know, through the whole process, a lot of bread, a lot of olive oil, uh, we start with a little bit of uh, spumante, and then we do a San Giovese as a wine through dinner, um, you know, enjoying that. Uh, I then do a bacala in a red sauce, which I've been, you know, taking care of for the last four days. Uh, I'm going to do a whole, um, it's a salt-crusted um, salt uh, red snapper, um, a white seafood lasagna, uh, spaghetti with clams, a steamed mussels, and then we'll do a seafood salad as well. And then dessert. Again, but, uh, what time know, is dinner? <laughs> she wants to be invited. <laughs> and, and, I know, I'm like, oh, that sounds really of, good. <laughs> and, and lots of bourbon, if you wish. <laughs> <laughs> Side note to everybody, uh, Gene and I have been talking about bourbon on uh, social media. That's where that's tying into it. <laughs> but go ahead, Gene. This is fascinating. Well, so, you know, and then, you know, we go into, you know, the desserts. Um, tonight I do uh, tiramisu. I make, I have some uh, pizzelles and some cannoli um, and then my homemade uh, orange cello and my homemade chocolate cello. And uh, as a gift for my family, everybody who leaves tonight leaves with a bottle of London cello. Oh, wow. So, you know, it's a really wonderful celebration. Um, it just even though my family is not Italian, um, you know, I like to get everybody involved in understanding the, you know, the, the cultures of other people and, and, you know, the American or the Italian heritage is so important in America, especially on the East coast here of America. If anyone is interested in really seeing a wonderful, wonderful Christmas movie, there was actually a movie that was released last year in the fall. It is called Feast of the Seven Fishes. It is. Uh, it takes place uh, in the 
Pittsburgh area, just north of Pittsburgh there. And it is about family celebrating the Feast of the Seven Dishes. And they invite uh, what they would call a cake eater, a, a non-Italian, nice. non-Catholic server for the dinner. Um, and really her experience at the custom of the Feast of the Seven Fishes. And it's kind of a wonderful little uh, romantic drama, but really fascinating insight. And you can get it on uh, Amazon Prime uh, free. And nice. it's a fabulous, fabulous movie for the Christmas holidays um, that very few people know about. And it's well done. Hey, Gene, I just, your, your uh, history tour of the Reading Terminal was such a huge success that I want to give you, you, I want to give you at least a minute to promote yourself. Someone said to me, I want to know more about Gene. So promote yourself and then give your final thoughts on the seven fishes because we're almost out of time. But I want you to promote yourself uh, to the great sure. listeners. Well, I am a chef and a culinary instructor. Uh, I do a lot of various things in the industry. I am director of catering at a college in the Philadelphia area, as well as a consultant on large events and logistics for catering. Uh, I do a lot of menu development, and I do a lot of private food tours of Chinatown, of the Italian market, nice. of Reading Terminal. Um, if you have questions related directly to food and wish to get them answered, uh, certainly they can contact the show or they can email me directly. Uh, my email is ibfoodie2 at yahoo.com. That's I-B-F-O-O-D-I-E, the number two at yahoo.com. And I would gladly uh, answer to the best of my knowledge um, and and help anybody in that aspect. I think the uh, goal of any culinarian is to pass on what we've learned to the next generation. Absolutely. So, uh, what's your one thing you want to let our listeners know about the Feast of the Seven Fishes? Because we're actually going overtime. Now, go ahead, Gene. What's the one message you want to send? That it is really a celebration, more importantly, of family. Um, that's what all these celebrations are. They're a celebration of family and food that brings them together. Food is our common denominator in everything we do. And we need more than ever to come together as family and celebrate in these difficult days. That is fantastic. Gene, another home run. And we can't wait to talk to you again. Thank you, Gene. Thank you. I look forward to doing another episode. Absolutely. And that was our food historian and culinary expert, Gene Bloom. Uh, we're going to end the show. Tags, Amaris Pollock. You can find me across most social media um, under my name, Amaris Pollock, A-M-A-R-I-S, Pollock, P-O-L-L-O-C-K, and A-R Pollockus. Matt, Matt Maritea. I am Matt Maritea, a.k.a. M. Maritea 22 on Twitter, on Instagram, on Untapped for you beer folks. Uh, <laughs> and as always, you can find... All of my sports-related work and some occasional food and beer stuff at lastoutmedia.com. That is also housing our beautiful studios. And yes. Do you know Gene's socials? Because he didn't actually shout those out. Uh, well, oh, we'll yeah. Give them... It's actually ibfoodie2 as well on okay. social media. And he would be more than happy to help you if you have a question. So thank you very much. That was an outstanding episode. And we will see you next week. 
At Cook Unity, they believe food is a great connector and should be ready in minutes when you are. That's why I'm introducing you to a personalized meal subscription service tailored to your dietary needs with over 150 meals to choose from per week. At Cook Unity, you can eat like you have a private chef delivering meals to your door. And if you sign up using the code A-R-P-O-L-L-O-C-K-U-S in all caps, you can get $30 off your first and second week's order. So sign up at cookunity.com and begin eating well without effort. Sporting Chance Podcast. Crack one open and give this podcast a chance. It is a weekly rundown of Philly sports, a dive into craft beer, and a peek at the sports memorabilia collection of Matthew Maratea, which is also me. Join me as I am a lifelong fan, a craft beer industry worker, and a sports writer as I'm trying to tie together all of my passions for give you, the listeners, a refreshing look at the world of sports and beer. You can tune in on iTunes. Uh, Anchor, Spotify, and any number of other podcasting apps. So be sure to check it out and look for it weekly, the Sporting Chance Podcast.